Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. You are a visionary. You have a vision. You just need to create it and bring it to life. Welcome to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with your host, Kate Ebner. Our program will be an hour of inspiration from leaders who are making their visions happen and will set you on the path to having a big impact through your leadership and the life you really want. Now here's your host, Kate Ebner. Good morning and welcome to the show. My guest today, Geraldine Laybourne, has been a groundbreaking pioneer in the field of cable television programming and also online media. Recognized as one of the most influential leaders in the television industry, she helped turn the children's network Nickelodeon into one of the most powerful in, in TV. And in 2002, she launched Oxygen, a network geared exclusively toward women. And of course, we've all watched and, and heard of Oxygen since then. Jerry's known for her out-of-the-box management style, creative drive, and commitment to collaboration. Her innovations have not been limited to television, however. Today, we're going to be talking about the Mentor Walk events that she started in the United States and the global impact that they're having today. Um, Jerry's passion for helping other women to advance as leaders is a key part of her vision and her extraordinary life. So, Jerry, thank you for joining me today. And I know that what we're going to talk about will be a huge source of inspiration for others. Welcome. Kate, I so look forward to this. So do I. And, you know, Jerry, you're so well known for your contributions, and yet I know that many of our listeners are going to be meeting you for the first time today, so I'd love to take a moment to just walk through the highlights of your story. Um, can you help me to be accurate? Um, this is probably going to be a strange experience for you to hear someone else telling you back your life. <laughs> but let me give it a try. <laughs> um, well, I grew up in a, a rural town in New Jersey, and I was one of three sisters right in the middle. And my older sister was beautiful and perfect, and my younger sister was brilliant and charismatic. So my dad decided I was going to be his business daughter. So uh-huh. I got schooled at a very early age. Um, but I, I uh, went to uh, public high school, and then I went to Vassar College, where I majored in art history and I learned those valuable lessons about questioning everything. And um, that really set the stage for my incredibly disruptive career. <laughs> <laughs> questioning everything. So you studied art history at Vassar. You went on and, and did uh, more education at the University of Pennsylvania. Was that, that was elementary education. Is that right? Yes. Between Vassar and Penn, I met my husband, who was doing pioneering work in the field of media education with kids in high schools, kids who were in the poorest of the schools in Philadelphia. And I was just intrigued with the power of the media and kids. And uh, so I got a master's in elementary education at Penn. Wow. And then, you I, already... I, then I went into teaching and um, a very short career in teaching, but intense, and mm-hmm. uh, and a career in nonprofit organizations where I tried a lot of 
crazy things with kids to see what they would be interested in in terms of media, the Media Center for Children and the Center for Understanding Media. I see. And, and then in, in 1979, was it, when um, your husband, Kit, got you to join him in starting Early Bird Productions? Is that correct? Early Bird Specials was uh, the brainchild of Eli Noyes, my husband, Kit, and me. And mm-hmm. we got a grant from um, Thomas Watson of IBM fame to start this company to market the work of independent filmmakers to television. Our theory was that there were plenty of talented, creative people out there, especially in New York, that just weren't being, weren't being connected to kids, that all kids' TV except for Sesame Street and Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood were being produced in Los Angeles um, in animation, limited animation factories, and we had these crazy theories that new creative people would bring new ideas to kids. Wow, so you're, it's, you really wanted to bring the best creative talent to kids, is what I'm hearing. And different, and different, and different. We felt yeah. that there was a lot of uh, very similar animation being aimed at kids, and we wanted to provide a much more varied menu for them. I see. And so you, you pitched this, I believe, to uh, Nickelodeon, and began what would become a, a, a relationship that lasted many, many years. Do you want to talk a little bit about, about that? Um, well, our, our idea was about taking kids and using color Xerox, which tells you exactly what time of life <laughs> this was, to uh, have kids uh, relay their dreams to us, and we would then use color Xerox and put kids in their own dreams and make television out of it. Turned out that's a terrible idea for kids' television because most of their dreams are about abandonment and suffocation. Ah. (laughs) But in the process, they got to know us and how we think, and so they hired me on staff, and they continued to hire uh, Eli and Kit to uh, create some very innovative stuff for Nickelodeon. Well, you um, so you joined Nickelodeon in 1980, um, hired by Bob Pittman, then head of MTV, and over the next 16 years or so, you masterminded some unconventional children's programs, including Rugrats, The Secret World of Alex Mack, and Pepper Ann, to name just a few. Um, and I know that one of the aspects of your work that was really innovative was talking to children as equals and sort of taking a different stance with children. Um, over that time, those 16 years, you were able to grow Nickelodeon, and I know you and your team grew Nickelodeon um, from small, maybe just five people in 1980, to being an $8 billion business. Am I summarizing it correctly? Almost. Um, just a couple of details. Bob Pittman was uh, running MTV when I joined Nick, and then when he got a chance to run the whole company, he gave me a chance to run Nickelodeon. So I was at Nickelodeon for about three years before I got a chance to run it, which was fantastic because I had, I was never short on opinions and I had a notebook full of what would I do if I got to run Nickelodeon. And, (laughs) um, you know, the problem with the, the beginning of Nickelodeon was it was a, it was thought of as a throwaway. We were just going to try to help cable operators get franchises, so we didn't really have to be that good. And we just had to be 
good for kids. We didn't have to be excellent television. Um, so it was very green vegetables, so green vegetables that my son Sam, who was five at the time, came back from camp one day and threw his hat into the, his Nickelodeon hat into the closet, kind of sobbing. And I said, "What is wrong?" He said, "Kids think Nickelodeon is a baby channel." Aww. And then I would hear him telling people that I was a housewife. So. My goal became how do we make Nickelodeon something that my son is going to be proud of and think is fun and cool. And so, you know, we did, we went from having a million and a half, uh, households when we started, when I started at Nickelodeon to having 56% of all kids, kid television viewing when I left. And, wow. you know, it was, it was exciting. We grew, 36% a year, we had gigantic profit margins because we, we went a different route and we, we would listen to what standard television programmers for kids would say. Kids only like animated, pre-sold characters. So the whole range of product that they were looking at were movies where you would create limited animation based on a movie so it would automatically disappoint a kid because it wasn't nearly as good as the original but that was the belief program only to boys girls will watch anything it was hmm. it was just like we were handed uh, <laughs> what to do by what everybody told us was the conventional wisdom it's like okay hmm. well let's prove that's wrong let's hmm. prove we can make a great live action show with Double Dare that's just nothing but fun and uh, pure fun. But the, the real breakthrough with Nickelodeon was we listened to kids. It was such a radical concept. But, you know, we would go in and we would show them ads for other people's products, and they would say back to us, don't use adjectives. Don't tell us something's funny. You better be funny. And mm. it was teachers. Kids were our teachers. And that's where my background as a elementary school teacher was so helpful. You know, I'm curious, at that time, as you were making, you know, as you were debunking the old rules and formulas, you know, it sounds like you referred earlier to your, your dad and to your, your liberal arts education at Vassar, sort of learning how to question the status quo. And I'm curious about, um, you know, what it was like for you to be a, a, a game changer you know was it did it feel risky did it feel um fun what was it like well I, I, you know as a second child uh i don't know how many of your listeners are second children but they're going to be nodding their heads right now yeah. because we just are we just like to do it differently <laughs> we have these older siblings who are so well behaved and you know so it is a real joy and yeah we had nothing to lose at Nickelodeon. Nobody expected anything of us. It was just uh, really a pure joy. And having young children at home who were very much a part of what we were doing, and, you know, we had no money in the beginning, so they were frequently in things, or we shot stuff at our house. And it was, you know, it was, like, just fun. It was fun. I really, it sounds like it really was fun. And, you know, you, you left there and went to Disney. 
I think it was 1996, and became president of uh, the Disney ABC cable networks um, during the growth period of Disney Channel, Lifetime, A&E, and the History Channel. And you didn't stay long. And I know at that time you were becoming interested in online ventures. And I'm curious about that 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 little piece. Um, it Disney. was a very uh, interesting time for me. I left something that I absolutely loved. It was, you know, my personality and people that I adored. And I kind of threw myself out the window. I was 48 years old. I felt like I had taken big risks for Nickelodeon, but I never really had taken big risks for me. And I wanted to see what I had learned and how it could apply to other audiences. And it was at a change for Disney and ABC where Disney had just purchased ABC. Bob Iger was new to the company. Uh, They had uh, ambitions to do a 24-hour news service and an education service. And uh, all of that sounded incredibly exciting to me. And having gotten Nickelodeon to the point where it was actually, when I left, it was worth $12 billion. So it was, it was, you know, it was exciting. But when I got there, I, I realized how different the, the atmosphere at Viacom was. It was very much a sink-or-swim portfolio-managed company. Uh, Disney was a single-brand company that uh, was, you know, incredibly well-run, and uh, there was a lot of adult supervision. turned out I didn't really want that much adult supervision, and and I didn't want to be an adult supervisor. I really was an entrepreneur, and that's what I didn't really understand before I went to Disney. And, you know, that's what created the next chapter in my life, which was, okay, you think you're an entrepreneur, let's test that one. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. You know, I think when we come back from our break, we're going to, I would love for our listeners to hear that story of how you actually went um, from Disney to the founding of Oxygen, and I think that's a story that so many people will relate to. In fact, just last week I was at the Kids Screen Summit, and we were on a panel talking about, you know, the stories of some of these really accomplished um, executives, and the question from the audience was, you know, how did you find the courage to do this? You know, how did you find the courage to take this step? And so I I think your next piece is going to really help us learn something about courage. So we're going to take a little break right now, and we will be right back. We're always talking business. Talk to an expert. Call now, toll free, 866-472-5790. That's 866-472-5790. Voice America Business Network. Think of the world 50 years ago. Now think of this same world and how it'll be 50 years from now. Did you know that if the world's population continues to grow at its current rate, our children and grandchildren will only have 25% of the resources per capita that our parents and grandparents had? We must preserve the foundation of a quality standard of living. That foundation starts with Go Green Radio. Join your host, Jill Buck, for Go Green Radio every Friday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific on Voice America. Each week, Jimmy Gould brings you the stories and the people that you want to hear about. 
Tune in to Our Current Life to hear about the journey to success, how our guests became the people they are today, and the highs and lows they experienced along the way. Each hour will leave you inspired and entertained as Jimmy gets up close and personal with every week's guest and shares ideas you can identify with and apply to your own life. A Current Life with Jimmy Gould airs Fridays at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, noon Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm here today with Jerry Laybourne, one of the most influential leaders in, in the media industry whose vision has always kept her a step ahead. Um, we're going to be talking a little bit more about her career path, which is so interesting. And um, I'd love to just pick up where we left off, Jerry. You were at Disney. You were realizing that it wasn't quite what you were looking for, that you were an entrepreneur. And I'd love for you to just tell us the story about how you went from Disney to founding Oxygen. I'm happy to, Kate. The interesting thing for me at Disney was there was a lot of learning going on for me. There were these fantastic Imagineers like Danny Hillis and and Alan Kay who were brilliant uh, computer scientists. And so I was learning a lot there, but I was truly not fitting into the executive suit that had been given to me. And And I realized that to move to something. I couldn't just leave Disney. I had to do two things. One, I had to accomplish something, which I did. I got some great people in place to turn around the Disney Channel and Lifetime. And, uh, you know, I made some very concrete contributions. But I also had to figure out something that I wanted to go to. And a friend of mine suggested that I read this book called The Artist's Way, which is a very interesting process of going inside yourself. You wake up and write three pages of single-spaced stream of consciousness. You never reread it. You never edit it. You never censor yourself. You just write whatever comes out. And, you know, when you start, you spew, and then you start getting orderly, and then you go deeper and deeper. And after about three months of doing this process of waking up 30 minutes earlier and this discipline, my dreams were much more vivid and I was clearly working all night long what am I going to do what am I going to do and one morning I woke up with this thought oxygen that's what the world needs a breath Mm. of fresh air for creative people for consumers that's what we need and so then I I started from there and I talked to a few of my friends like Marcy Carsey who was uh, arguably the most successful television producer in the history of the medium and Marcy was excited about the idea of uh, having a cable television network. I was excited about the idea of creating real utility for women on the internet and we had this vision for doing a convergence brand that was half on TV and half 
on the Internet. And, you know, it's so interesting to look back now because actually we launched in 2000 um, as a television network, and we were way ahead of our time. And as you remember, there was this uh, incredible bubble. And pre-bubble, our investment bankers told us, don't do anything on TV, just do the Internet, because that's where all the value is. And we said, no, we need to do both. And we fought for it. And then, of course, we had to change course almost immediately because the bubble burst. Um, Mm. But before the bubble burst, we went, we, Marcy and I made a trip to Chicago because we figured, you know what, if there's one person in the world who could help us get this brand off the ground, it's Oprah Winfrey. And we went and we had lunch with her and, you know, she had her own process that you couldn't uh, mess with and it she was excited to meet with us, and we clearly all liked each other. Mm-hmm. But we didn't really hear from her for a month, and then she invited me to come out to Chicago, and I spent a day with her. And it was just, we were lying around on her couches, and she was just interviewing me for seven straight hours. And it was so, so incredibly much fun. And then two months later, she called up and said, I'm in. And wow. at the same time, we had uh, investment bankers who were helping us to raise money, and we ended up raising probably more money than any women-led company, private company, has ever raised. And we had great backing from Paul Allen and uh, Clarity Partners and uh, LVMH uh, But I think what was most interesting to me, Kate, was that what I always feared was how are we ever going to raise money because that is Hmm. something I have never done. And when we got into the process, it suddenly dawned on me that that is all I had done when I was at Nickelodeon was raise money. You know, I had been fighting for resources inside a company where I only had one bank. And so... It was much harder, actually, to raise money inside a company than outside. If you went to a meeting and people weren't interested in your proposition, there was always another meeting that you could have. And so Mm -hmm. the the part that seemed the most daunting ended up being the easiest. You know, that's a a really um, interesting thing to hear you say. I think that reminds me of the way that sometimes when we work internally in an organization for a while, it kind of becomes our sense of reality. And then when you do something like what you did, where you're jumping into something brand new, you suddenly discover, hey, I everything I've been doing is related and perfect training, actually, for this. So, exactly. That's very interesting. Now, what do you think was the key to your fundraising success? I mean, was it the vision itself of this um, television plus internet um, concept, or was it that was it about was it that it was for women? What do you think? What do you think attracted? I don't. I honestly don't think it was the fact that it was for women was that helpful in the raising of the money. What was it was incredibly helpful, and the reason why we picked that audience, besides the fact that I'm nuts about that audience, mm-hmm. um, was that there wasn't all that much tailored to young women. Lifetime was aimed at a 
at an older woman at the time. And cable operators who it were really my friends because we grew up together, and they saw how much Nickelodeon helped them build their businesses. So they really were more inclined to take oxygen because we were women. But the investment community was excited about two things. One, we had three women with pretty incredible track records. Marcus mm-hmm. was an A-plus in mm-hmm. broadcast television. Oprah's was, uh, I don't know, A-plus-plus times the 10th <laughs> power. And I had a good track record in building a cable network. Um, mm-hmm. So our track record was really pretty, it was, you know, it's always, your best thing is always your worst thing. It it attracted so much media attention that, you know, that was made our job much, much harder. Um, but we also were in a space that people were excited about, this idea that you could create a converged brand. I think if we had gone out to try to raise money for a television network, we would not have succeeded. It was because we had this combination. And um, I think that those are the two things that really helped us. You know, you saw that. It, you know, as you said a moment ago, it, you, you saw the converged opportunity before others did. Uh, what was it you saw back then? Well, I saw that uh, I'm, I've always been excited by interactivity from the time I was three years old when my mother said, hello, television, and the television said back to her, hello, out there in television land. I actually thought television was interactive for years. <laughs> um, so interactivity has always been exciting to me. And the fact is, you know, I understand women pretty well, and we have uh, phenomenal jobs we have every, you know, we, we wear so many hats, and we're the chief purchasing agent of our home uh, business. We're the chief psychologist. We have all these different jobs. And my passion was how could we make those jobs just a little more fun? How could we use technology to be a real uh, friend of women and... Um, you know that that was what was exciting to me. Mm, I loved I love that idea. I've I've been thinking along those lines too as a leadership coach working with a lot of um, senior executive women. I've I've been asking that question for several years. Like how can how can our technologies befriend us and make this work better instead of become, you know, these cursed <laughs> devices and and such that you know our children are throwing in the swimming pool, which is a story I've heard from many of my clients. So I'm I love I love this this thought, the commitment to interactivity, and also how can technology be our friend? Um, You know, I wonder, we're going to be taking a break in just a couple minutes, but I'd love it if you could talk about the decision to to say goodbye to oxygen, to to let go of oxygen in 2007 and and move beyond that. Well, I... I was not really that excited about saying goodbye to oxygen. And uh, I had investors who had come on board when we were going to be an Internet company and had expected return, Google-like returns. And even though we were profitable and we made a profit for all of our investors, we weren't, uh, we weren't Google and we weren't Facebook. And mm-hmm. 
so there was a lot of pressure on the part of our investor base to um, sell the company. In retrospect, I'm, I, I think it was fantastic that we sold the company when we did. Oxygen could never have um, been in an existence if it had started at a, at a big media company. But it was increasingly hard to get cross-promotion and uh, to get the kind of good channel positions. that new, Right now, Oxygen is on channel 12 in New York City. When Oxygen's on channel 12, it gets 10 to 20 times the rating that it gets on channel 121. Hmm. So there's part of you that just has to look in the mirror and say, you know what, this struggle is incredibly hard and um, we should go with the flow of the other investors and they they didn't have the right to force a sale but they had the right to raise this topic and you know in retrospect what happened in we sold the company in late 2007 and what happened in 2008 would not have been good for an independent media company hmm and that's the big the, the economic crash of right. two thousand and eight. Um, I would, I, are we are we uh, running into a break? Or yeah, we've we got another another okay. another thirty so, seconds. You know, for me, what was exciting? We made it as a television network. We were profitable, and we were just going back into the internet space, and we were actually just beginning to build some of the. Uh, fun utilities that I had imagined, you know, 10 years earlier. Mm-hmm. And um, I got a chance to be part of a software development team where we built um, the first prototype for what that was going to be like. And it was called RIPT.com. Mm-hmm. And it was a different, it was taking the assumption that women's brains are different than men's brains. And one of the big things is we have more prefrontal cortex, 12% more. And that Mm -hmm. causes us to want to keep folders open at all times. It's how we can go from one topic to the other. It's why your radio show is so interesting. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we're going to take the break now. When we come back, I really want to explore this um, conversation a little bit more in terms of your next move and also what what the difference is between men and women and your passion for helping advance women. So we'll be right back. Great. Thanks. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Tune in every week for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP. Host Bonnie D. Graham talks to a cross-section of the movers and shakers who are leading by example. They will share best practices and innovative ideas to keep you thinking and moving along with the best. Join us for Coffee Break with Game Changers, presented by SAP, Wednesday mornings at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. If you are looking for both an inside and insightful look at what you're not seeing in media coverage of today's legal, business, and policy battles, 
tune into In the Court of Public Opinion with host Jim Haggerty. What happens in the public arena affects us all. Whether you're following the latest high-profile court case, corporate crisis, or are just interested in government and policy, be sure to tune in every Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel. The witnesses are ready and the jury seated. So join us for our next session in the Court of Public Opinion. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Yes, I'm here today with my guest, Jerry Laybourne, who has been telling us about um, her amazing career story, which actually, for me, has given us a, a perspective on the evolution of an entire industry. Um, and because she was a, a forethinker in that field, you know, to be able to see from her position has just been fascinating this morning. Um, so before the break, Jerry, we were talking about um, that moment there where you um, sold oxygen to NBC Universal and it was just before the crash and we were beginning to talk about some of the amazing opportunities that, that occurred both while you were at oxygen but also um, some of the thinking that started to you got to work on some projects that really helped you to think about um, women and in particular how women's minds work and how uh, women and men are different and I'd love to just pick up on that and have you tell us a little bit more about what what you learned. Well, you know, the process in my brain is messy, and I read, I talk to people, I listen to consumers, I listen to technologists, I'm curious about a lot of stuff. I'm not a particularly uh, deep uh, thinker in any one field, I don't think. I, I think I just am so questioning of things and so eager to find out what's true and I try things out all the time I'm not afraid to to have a theory and be laughed at and in fact I think I get a great deal of joy out of having a theory and getting laughed at um, but I, I I have to read widely and I have to you know I was shaped by uh, people like David Elkind when we were doing uh, Nickelodeon and his book, The Hurried Child, was really something that completely captured my imagination. And then I heard validation from kids in focus groups. Hey, let us just have a childhood. We're being pressured to grow up too fast. That became the single biggest idea that, because we strategically held on to that and, and were true to kids, that is what built this phenomenal business of Nickelodeon mm -hmm. and so it's 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 an amalgamated process of keeping all my folders in my gigantic prefrontal cortex open mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you know as, as, as you're describing that it's it's also clear to me that you're able to discern the big idea you know so this phrase you know let us have a childhood became the big idea and 
you know that that quality of discernment is interesting. You know, I'm I'm curious as a as an entrepreneur, as an innovator, how do you know what the big idea is when it when you strike it? I think you try a bunch of ideas, and you fall on your face. And you know, I'm most critical of executives today who are you know in the rise of their career who play it too safe. Because you never get a big idea by playing it safe. And, you know, television is the worst field of all where somebody has a successful real world and then suddenly that's the template for everything and everything sort of gets petered out as you go along. But, and then the next big thing will be Glee, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, very fresh and then you're going to see a trail on copies of that. But, um, to me, failure is your best friend, and it, it. I, you know, we were very uh, close uh, in both our Oxygen and Nickelodeon teams. We 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 signed off on the strategy. We were very win-win oriented. It was, uh, you know, a very nice culture. The problem with a nice culture is they really did not like anything to fail because that would be disappointing to us. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I would always have a gigantic smile on my face when we had a big failure because we were learning stuff. Mm-hmm. And it was bigger when we were at Nickelodeon and no one was paying attention to us. It didn't <laughs> radiate as big when we were under the microscope at Oxygen. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it reminds me of uh, last week I had a guest on the show who's a 13-time medalist in the um, Paralympics and a man who has no use of his legs from the waist down wow. thanks to a skiing accident. And yet he just climbed Mount Kilimanjaro on a hand cycle. And his personal motto is, run towards fear. Oh, that's great. <laughs> but, yeah, but he re- you remind me of him, actually, in the, in the, the embracing of uh, failure and the uh, seeing failure as an opportunity. And I, th- I think that's a really great call for all of us out, out there listening to think about our the relationship we have with our sense of success versus failure. What can we, what can we be learning? You know, and so, you know, as you, as you talk about this, I'm also really noticing the curiosity, um, Jerry, that you bring to everything. And I think that goes right back to um, the second child mention that you made at the beginning, but maybe also back to Vassar and the liberal arts, the, the learning how to learn that I know the liberal arts really contributes. And I wonder if you, if you have any thoughts about that aspect of you, you know, that curious, open, exploring, learning from everything mind. You know, what's, Do you make- what's, I'm so glad you asked that question because we're in the middle of a economic uh, downturn where uh, there are frequent questions about how useful is a liberal arts education, and then you'll also hear conversations about the need for uh, innovation and, you know, how are we going to get our country back on track. Well, you know, to me, having a liberal arts education is all about figuring out about innovation and innovative thinking. And when I think about, you know, my fellow graduates of Vassar, Katerina Fake invented Flickr, and Mark Ordan invented Fresh Fields, which led to Whole Foods. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it's, these are all people who studied English and history and art history. And, but we were given this idea that you go back to the primary source. You go back to the source. 
you try to figure out what is truly true. And I think that's what sparks innovation. You know, I'm glad you make that connection between uh, the liberal arts education, which is really training training the mind to look for the truth, to look for the answers, and to look in a variety of places and actually make the connections across disciplines, across um, lines of study and lines of thought. And, and I, I've been um, surprised um, at first, but not really, to, to find that on this show, as leaders have come onto the show, there have been a startling number of liberal arts graduates, and in particular English majors, <laughs> who are leading across sectors. You know, So I think that's a, it's a powerful thing to realize that innovative thinking and um, and game-changing thinking often really does come out of that liberal, liberal arts educational you know, there's, background. There's plenty of room for vocational training and for, mm-hmm. you know, getting specific early. It's mm-hmm. just not the path that was a, an exciting path to me. Yes. And yes. Um, I just, I hope that there are listeners out there who have kids that are applying to college today. Yeah, I do too. You know, um, I want to switch gears a little bit, and I know that uh, mentoring is something that's been a really important um, practice and principle in your career and in your life. And I know you had a powerful mentor who really made a difference for you. I'd love if you could tell us a little bit about your mentor and and the mentoring you're doing today. I was uh, very fortunate when I was starting out when I had my little production company to run across a woman who actually had gone to Vassar 20 years before me. And she took an interest in me, and she opened the door for me at Nickelodeon. So she made my introduction at Nickelodeon. And not only did she do that, but she, she, when, I, when I got the job, she went to my first speeches. She gave me notes on my speeches. She hemmed my pants. You know, she just <laughs> fantastic. And she had this big idea, which was broadcasting has been really a bad field for women. Let's make cable, which was just beginning, a good field for women. So that that was just a crazy notion. How could that ever be? Well, the way it was was that she picked a handful of us to mentor, and then how could we not turn around and mentor others? It was... it. it it just gave us the power to, and the, you know, the real uh, mission to make sure that cable was a great place for women. And I think there have been 25 women presidents of cable networks since Bernice, you know, claimed that in 1980. And, uh, you know, it's just, it, it, to me, it's astonishing that people can lay a claim like that and then just strategically stick to it. And, and that has been very important to me. Um, at one point in my career, I had I always mentored young women, and inside MTV networks, and I made a lot of speeches, and I made sure that I was visible to women. In fact, even Nickelodeon magazine, I wrote a column called "Ask the Boss Lady" just because I wanted little girls to know that the president of Nickelodeon was a woman. Mm-hmm. But um, Along the way, my schedule got jammed up, and my fantastic assistant, Ed Flathers, um, decided that what I needed was more exercise, not more breakfast, lunches, or dinners. <laughs> and so he started scheduling young 
mostly women, a few men, to walk with me in Central Park uh, at 7 o'clock in the morning. And it just was such a fun, great, um, sparky idea. And that uh, later on we, we institutionalized it for oxygen. And um, they're very interested in making sure that the world understands that women do help each other. That was the motivation for oxygen. But uh, for me personally... It just was a great way to get out, get fresh air, help young people, think big for them, and make connections for them. And that, that, those mentor walks, you know, those walks with you, I know, kind of um, sparked a bigger idea, which was, hey, you know, we could organize something that called a mentoring walk and invite many women to participate. Um, tell us about the first one of those. Well, it, as is typical of me, I thought, oh, this would be a great way to launch a show we were doing with Linda Kaplan-Thaler on um, entrepreneurship. And this would be a great way to launch that. We'll do a mentor's walk in Central Park. I'll just email my friends. We'll get 40 women and who are at the top of their careers, and it'll be easy. Well, I didn't know it wasn't all that easy to get a Central Park permit to march. <laughs> and... Anyway, Andy Bernstein on my staff organized it, and six weeks later we had this amazing walk with 400 women. We were on Good Morning America, and it was great. The energy was phenomenal. We took it across the country to 12 different cities, from Washington to Portland, and um, then I started talking about it as I was making speeches. And with Vital Voices, the... Uh, organization that Hillary Clinton began, I started talking every year at a conference that had women from all over the world, and they started to adopt it on their own. The first year they went to Nepal, and then the next year there were eight, and the next year there were ten. And, you know, it's just, it's wonderful. And I've been on two of them, one in Uganda and one in Argentina. You know, Jerry, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, I want to hear more from those walks and about what you now can see. This is just a wonderful conversation. We'll be right back. Up-to-date business and financial news. Call now and get the financial information you need. 866-472-5790. 866-472-5790. The experts are here. Voice America Business Network. Are you tired of the government squandering your tax dollars on bailouts and overpaid bureaucrats? On Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Mike Beitler and his guests explain why big government regulations are the problem and innovative businesses and free markets are the solution. Listen to Free Markets with Dr. Mike Beitler, Thursday mornings at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Network. 
Frankly Speaking About Cancer is a program designed to empower survivors and their caregivers to deal with the social and emotional challenges of cancer. Drawing on resources from wellness communities throughout America and abroad, the show will invite physicians, researchers, nurses, social workers, patients, and caregivers to share their advice on how to live a better life with cancer. Join host Kim Tibaldo, President and CEO of the Wellness Community, Tuesday afternoons at 1 p.m. Pacific Time and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. The business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. You're listening to Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life with host Kate Ebner. We'd love to hear from you. Pick up your phone and call into 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. If you'd rather send an email, please send it to visionaryleader at nebocompany.com. Now, back to today's program. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Jerry Laybourne, uh, one of the most game-changing leaders in the media industry and, and a woman whose ideas seem to spring to life and create impact all over the globe. We're just talking before the break about um, her mentor walks, which then turned into uh, a national mentor walk um, spearheaded by oxygen and then through Vital Voices went on to become a global opportunity. Um, and I know there have been... Um, you know, eight or more mentor walks around the world. And so um, I want to ask you, Jerry, I mean, you participated in two of them. You've blogged about your experiences and about the amazing women you've met. What really stands out to you about these international mentoring walks? Well, the first thing is that they all approach it differently. And, uh, you know, in Uganda, it was very inspirational speeches, not so much walking. It was, you know, quite warm. In Argentina, it was two and a half hours of walking with very thorough um, future plans and very well organized and no speeches. And so everybody brings their own formula to it. But what I see emerging around the globe, and you certainly saw this with uh, in Egypt and other parts of the Arab Spring, that this generation of women are speaking out. Their voices, their voices are vital. And uh, they're going to be leaders as we uh, become an even more knit global uh, world. The, you know, what, the reason that Mentors Walk means so much to me is that my own personal belief is there's only one reason why we're here, and that's to bring on the next generation. And, you know, I'm incredibly critical of my generation, baby boomers, for the leadership that we've uh, had and some of the problems that we're definitely uh, leaving our kids and our grandkids. Um, but that, that's where my focus is and, and where I spend most of my time today is trying to get women elected to office. The reason I believe that's important is because we do think differently. And it's not that women are better although we are better at certain things. But we, that mix is what is the strategic advantage of the United States of America, the fact that we have so many women that are being well-educated in, in, on every level. And um, 
I guess my biggest concern is, uh, are we raising our hands when we get a chance to be leaders? And they've, you know, when I started in business, there were no studies about how women were doing. And now there's study after study, and there are only two categories where women don't do as well as men. One is tooting their own horn, and the other is taking risks unless they know exactly how to do something. And that is dangerous because nobody who's offered a new job knows how to do it. <laughs> you know, it's like you, it's just taking a risk on yourself. And mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. My, my hope for women is that they won't be well-behaved and wait their turn, but that they'll be ready for their turn. And um, my hope for young people is that they'll think differently and they'll form different ideas. You know, certainly everything I ever thought I figured out in my 20s and then I've been acting on that ever since. Your brain never gets better. So don't wait for the adults to tell you how to do it because the fresh thoughts are coming uh, with young people. Mm. It's, that's powerful to hear you say, and it sounds to me like um, th- that you're articulating really a, v- a vision that you hold, a vision of a world of smart, energetic, game-changing women, and also a world where we, we as a nation are able to tap into um, the strategic advantage, you called it, of a more balanced male-female leadership paradigm. It's it's That's exactly right, and for me... Um, the reason that I want to see this is because it's a better world for my grandsons, and it's a better world for my son, and it's a better world for all of us. It's not <laughs> because I want women to be distinctly advantaged. Mm-hmm. It's just, you know, there, there's some famous saying about you can measure how good a country is by how well they treat their women. And I think that's right on. Hmm. You know, uh, speaking to women, and also I think to men, but speaking to women about um, the invitation, if you will, to toot your horn, to take risks, to be bolder, and to be less concerned about doing everything right and, and being in your comfort zone. You know, I'm, I'm curious, um, you've done these things. Um, what do you do? How do you manage your fear or the anxiety that comes from stepping into the place of not knowing, if you will? I think because my grandmother was a potato farmer in North Dakota during the Depression, that, and she had six kids that had to be fed, nothing that I've ever done has felt that scary. <laughs> you know, it's just, I'm more worried about, are my kids going to be healthy? Are my grandkids going to be healthy? And um, I don't know that, you know, I, I guess I get excited by taking risks, and Mm -hmm. I have some kind of mechanism for dealing with it if I fail. Um, I think it was a lot harder for me when I was younger to fail. Now, I think once you've accomplished a few things, if you fail, that's just part of the deal. Um, Yeah. And it's, you know, it's just... It's just a, it, I've had people ask me that question about what wasn't I afraid when I started this independent company, Oxygen? No, I was exhilarated. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I was afraid 
what I was afraid of was that my employees would feel bad when people started attacking us, which I knew they would, because you can't start something from scratch and be great. You have to have a messy period. Yeah. You know, I'm glad to hear you say that. I think that's, um, I don't know why it is that we think that we can start things and be great every time from the beginning, but it doesn't work that way. And so, you know, just even hearing you say, you know what, that's the way it works is going to be liberating, I think, for people who are listening. And I like the point about your grandmother, the potato farmer and the six kids, because it's a matter of perspective. You know, so as I listen to you, I think what you're saying is, you know, let's keep a perspective about this. You know, this isn't necessarily life or life or death. I want to hey, close. The other thing that oh, go I, ahead. on the on the subject of you know, if it is hard for women to toot their own horn, and mm-hmm. so at every speech I make, I say, if you can't toot your own horn, toot another woman's horn, and actually toot the guy's horns too, because that is rare in business today. And I've found, I think what we did at MTV Networks in our group of women who supported each other was we tooted each other's horns. We went out drinking when anybody got a promotion. And the guys would say, what are you guys doing? What are you plotting? It's like, no, we're drinking. No, really, what are you doing? (laughs) We're really just drinking. (laughs) But that is important. And in this day and age, when you see somebody taking a risk and falling flat on their face, toot their horn. Good, they took a risk, you know? I love it. And, you know, I'm going to end with this quote from you from a blog that you wrote after going to the mentor walk in Uganda, and you were the final speaker at the closing event, and you led off with an idea shared by one of the African participants, whose name I think was uh, Rayma. Rayma. And and you wrote in your blog, Rayma's words, if you light another woman's candle, it does nothing to diminish your candle. You get more light and more heat. And so I thank you so much for joining and sharing your light and your heat with us today, Jerry. It's just been a pleasure. Thank you. Kate, thanks so much. This was really fun. We sincerely hope you've enjoyed hearing from leaders who are using vision to create an inspiring future. Please join host Kate Ebner for another edition of Visionary Leader Extraordinary Life next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time on Voice America Business Channel. Meanwhile, visit www.nebocompany.com for more tips on bringing your own vision to life.